0: Well, we are taking a break this summer. We're taking a break this summer from our study of 1 John and taking a look at the Christian church's lost legacy. Webster defines a legacy as something that's been handed down from the past. Like when the Library of Alexandria was destroyed in 48 BC, the world lost thousands of years of human knowledge. The same thing has happened in the larger Christian church. Over the last 150 years or so, the Christian church has lost its rich legacy of knowledge and practice. As I mentioned last week, in some cases that's because of carelessness and neglect, but sadly, in other cases, it's an intentional abandonment of the legacy, the biblical legacy that has been received in exchange for some new idea, some new philosophy, some new approach. Many of you have come from churches here to countryside where some or much of the Christian church's legacy has been lost. And so, as the elders and I discussed it, we felt it was important for me to address some of the basic elements of the church's legacy that have been largely lost in the contemporary evangelical church. I want us to look at them in order to develop a deeper and more profound appreciation for that legacy, but also to understand its biblical foundations, the biblical foundations of these concepts so that we treasure them, we defend them, we benefit from them, and we pass them on to the next generation. Last week, we looked at the legacy of expository preaching Today and the next couple of weeks, I want us to focus on the recovery of the legacy of music in worship. Wherever God's people are, they will sing. It's part of who we are. It's our spiritual DNA. It's the result of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I'm going to take today, Lord willing, and the next two Sundays to deal with this issue of music. Now let me hasten to say that's not because music is some sort of a problem here at Countryside. By God's grace, we enjoy unusual unity on this issue, and by God's amazing and gracious providence, we also happen to have the best music director that there is. I mean that, yes. Seth really does a phenomenal job of choosing the best music from the past and today, leading us, leading the choir, leading the other vocalists, the musicians, in music and worship, so that it's worship and not a performance. But although music is not a problem here, there are a couple of reasons that I want to spend significant time on this issue. Let me tell you what they are. First of all, many Christians have an unbiblical philosophy of music. It may be because they belong to churches where the legacy of biblical music and worship was entirely lost. Or frankly, even those who belong to good churches, maybe the way that you think about God's gift of music has been shaped not by the Bible, but by the culture or by your own likes and preferences and ideas. And so it's important that we address it because so many Christians are so wrong when it comes to their understanding of music. A second reason I want to focus on this is because music is a crucial part of both our personal and our corporate worship of the God we love and serve. God created music. And its ultimate purpose is to bring Him glory. Music was around before the universe was around, and it will exist into eternity as a channel for the worship of God. So I want us to study what Scripture teaches about music. Specifically, we're going to focus on music in worship. And as we look at what the Scripture teaches, we're going to gain several important insights into this issue of music in worship. That's where we're going today and the next couple of weeks. So let's look together at the first insight. I want to begin with a biblical critique of today's music in worship. Now, based on what we're going to learn from Scripture, and I already know where we're going, there are several serious problems with the contemporary church's worship music. I'm just going to give you a list for now, but we'll address them biblically as the next couple of weeks unfold. So let me just give you the problem with where we are when the Scripture informs our understanding of worship and music. Here are some serious problems. Number one, music has become extremely divisive in the church. Obviously, this was never God's intention. He hates those who cause division. He hates division in His church. This happens Between individual members in a local church, this division over music really happens over generational differences in the church. That's why some churches try to solve that by having a traditional service and a contemporary service. That doesn't solve the problem. It only further divides God's people. Between the members of the church and the church's leadership at times, this becomes an issue of conflict, and certainly between larger groups in evangelical Christianity. So, it's become extremely divisive. That's a problem. The Bible does not in any way sanction division for division's sake, particularly when it comes to issues of taste. Obviously, if it's truth, and we'll talk about that, that's a different issue. A second biblical critique of music and worship is it often has poor quality poetry or music. Now, we don't experience that here because Seth makes very good choices, but If you've listened to the radio or you've been in other churches, you know that often there is really poor quality poetry or poor quality music. Number three, it often has weak or errant lyrics. Sometimes there's just nothing really to sing. I remember visiting a church one time, and my wife and I were there with some others, and we were trying to sing and participate in the worship, But literally for five minutes, we sang one lyric line, It's a Beautiful, Wonderful Day. Now, I thought it was a beautiful, wonderful day. And even though they didn't say in the song that it was because of God, I knew that God had made it a beautiful, wonderful day because he's creator, because he's good. He showers us daily with good things. And so for the first minute, I was able to participate in this song. But after a minute, I had pretty much rung all of the truth I could wring out of It's a Beautiful, Wonderful Day. And often, sadly, that's the way songs are. Other times, they're errant lyrics. They're simply biblically wrong. Someone was telling me between the services about a, a song they sang this, this summer at a camp that said something like, and I don't, I don't, I'm I getting the lyric wrong line wrong, I'm sure, but it was something like, you know, God you're happy to take me and let me live however I want. It's like, well, no, that wouldn't be true. Number four, music is often shaped by churches and movements with bad theology. For an example, Bethel Church in Redding, California, is a hotbed not only of charismatic theology but even heretical ideas. Sadly, Bethel Church has produced many of today's top Christian songs. In fact, this week I looked at the, the list of songs that are sung most frequently in churches in America, and they produced a number of those songs. And, and evangelical churches that would reject the theology that's taught there embrace it through their music. Number five, it's often aimed primarily at the emotions rather than the mind. It's about whipping people up. It's about creating an experience with, you know, smoke and lights and… and all that's involved with whipping up people emotionally. Now, this isn't new, by the way. I grew up in an old Southern Baptist church where they did it with eight verses of Just As I Am after the, after the sermon. Number six, it's often a performance rather than God-directed worship. Now, we're going to talk about styles of worship music in the coming couple of weeks, but understand this. Regardless of the style, it can be done in a way that's worship, and it can be done in a way that's performance. God doesn't want a performance on the stage. He wants worship directed to him. Number seven, professing Christians often don't sing or sing out. Now, let me just tell you, this is a pet peeve of mine. Prepare yourself. You're going to hear about this several times. If God is worthy of our worship, then he's worthy of our worship. Christians need to sing. Number eight, it is intentionally, that is worship music, focused on one style, one kind of sound, or one era of music. You know, you go to some churches, and it's clear the music director grew up in the 60s because that's the kind of music you you hear, or the 80s, or whatever it is, or one particular approach to music. We're going to see that that's not a biblical model. There is a biblical model, and that's not it. As we will discover today and the next couple of weeks, the Bible addresses every single one of those serious problems with today's music in worship. But I want us to begin our study of what the Bible teaches about this crucial issue by considering a biblical history of music. So the second insight I want you to see here is a biblical history of music. Music is such an incredible gift. Martin Luther, the reformer, not only defended Sola Scriptura and Sola Fide, but he also revolutionized the role of music in worship. And listen to what he wrote. I love this quote. The riches of music are so excellent and so precious that words fail me whenever I attempt to discuss and describe them. In Summa, next to the Word of God, the noble art of music is the greatest treasure in the world. This precious gift has been given to man alone that he might thereby remind himself that God has created man for the express purpose of praising and extolling God, end quote. That's what music reminds us of. That is exactly, by the way, what the scripture teaches. But we need to get that in our minds. So, so, let's start with the big picture about the place and priority that Scripture has given to music. Now, the Bible contains more than 600 references to music. We obviously aren't going to exhaust them or I would exhaust you, but let's, let's start at the beginning. Let's start with music in the Old Testament. What was it like there? Well, first of all, understand this, that music existed before the creation of the universe. It existed before the creation of man. Music has its origin in God. Now, there are two possibilities. It's possible that God created music as He created all other things before He created the universe. That's one possibility. The second possibility, and I lean here, is since Scripture says that God himself sings, as we will see, it's possible that music has always existed as an expression of the eternal mind of God. Regardless, we know that music was the spontaneous reaction of those powerful, intelligent beings that the Bible calls angels. It was their reaction to God and to His creation of the universe. Turn with me to the book of Job, Job 38. You remember God begins to speak in Job 38 and and confront Job's understanding of His sovereignty and suffering, And, and He says this, in Job 38.1, Yahweh answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. He's basically saying, look, Job, you think you understand why your circumstances should be different. Well, then let's talk about how much knowledge and power you really have. Were you there? when I created, did you have anything to do with that? Verse 5, who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? Now, notice verse 7. Remember, he's talking about the creation. And he says, at the creation, and God was there, obviously, to know, when the morning stars sang together... And all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now, that that expression, the sons of God, has already occurred in the book of Job. Back in chapter 1, verse 6, it refers to the angelic beings around the throne of God. And so, what God is saying here is, when I created the universe, when I created the earth, the angels sang together and shouted for joy. Wouldn't you have loved to have heard that song? So music was part of the expression of the angel's worship of God when he made the universe. But it wasn't long until music invaded human history as well. Moses describes the beginning of human music in the first book of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 4 you have a description of the origin of human society that followed the fall of man. Moses describes there two distinct societies, two distinct lines. One was the godly line of Seth, the other the ungodly line of Cain. And out of Cain's family came secular society. Yet even in that sinful family and its descendants, you can see glimpses of God's common grace. And one of those is that God gave even fallen man the gift of music. Look at Genesis chapter 4, verse 21. And the previous verse was talking about Jabal. And then it says in verse 21, his brother's name was Jubal. Those of you who like to name your kids alike, you stand in a long tradition. <laughs> Genesis 4. His, brother na- his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. In other words, Jubal is the human father of those who play the instruments and accompany music. One of Cain's descendants as an expression of God's common grace to man was the one who gave life to instrumentation. But music was also part of the godly line as well. Although there's no direct mention of music sung in the praise of God in the book of Genesis, the events of the book of Job occur during the same time period. And there we learned that the godly were singing about God. Turn to Job chapter 36. Job 36, verse 22. Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has appointed him his way? And who has said, you have done wrong? Verse 24. Remember that you should exalt God's work of which men have sung. So, even early on in human history, the godly line, the line of Seth, was praising God in song. This became a normal part of the worship of God's people. When you come to the time of Moses, music begins to play a crucial role in the corporate worship of God's people. In Exodus chapter 15, you have the song of Moses sung by Israel, commemorating God's great deliverance at the Red Sea. There's a fascinating passage I wish I had time to take you to in Deuteronomy 31, where you have God commanding the people to memorize the song of Moses. He's to teach it to the people. They're to learn it and sing it so that they remember the truth of what God has said. Even during the most difficult period of the Old Testament, the time of the Judges, When there was no king in Israel, but everyone did that which was right in his own eyes, there was music that was addressed to God. In Judges chapter 5, you have Deborah's song of praise. In 1 Samuel 2, you have Hannah's song of praise about the birth of Samuel. But then you come after the Judges to the richest time of Old Testament hymnody and songs of worship, and that's the period of the monarchy, specifically the time of David, And Solomon. We are even introduced to David in 1 Samuel 16, 18 in this way. One of the young men said, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, this is David, who is a skillful musician. The very first thing he thought of when he thought of David was he is a skilled musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man, and Yahweh is with him. As you know, David was the great psalmist of Israel and wrote many of the psalms that are in our psalter. But when David became king, he also identified 4,000 Levites who were responsible for music at the tabernacle. In a later generation, that same group became responsible for the music and the worship at the temple. David himself wrote 74 of the Psalms that are in the collection of the Psalter that we have, most of them in books, books 1 and 2 of the five books of Psalms. His son Solomon wrote a 1,000 songs according to 1 Kings 4, but only two of his Psalms are recorded in the Psalter, Psalm 72 and Psalm 127. So this was the, the great high point for songwriting in the worship of the Old Testament but the same thread of spiritual songs can be traced throughout the rest of the Old Testament scholars believe that Ezra the scribe wrote a number of the 48 anonymous psalms that are in the book of Psalms of course there were other altars other authors rather and it's likely that the book of Psalms was completed in its current form under the direction of Ezra in that same time frame so hundreds of years of songwriting and song singing corporately among the people of God. Now, when you come to the New Testament, you find that music and worship was constantly present in the life of our Lord and in several different ways. I don't know if you've thought about this, but there was obviously music at all of the feasts of Israel. There were songs that were sung at the feasts We have an inspired record of one of those. You remember after the Passover celebration in Matthew 26, 30, it says, after singing a hymn, that is Jesus and the 11, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And there were other songs connected to each of the Feasts of Israel. In addition, there were songs of ascent that the pilgrims going to those feasts sang on the way and as they even entered the temple. Daily, there was music at the temple, morning and evening, accompanied by choirs and instruments. And every single Saturday of Jesus' life, think about this, every Sabbath, Jesus attended the synagogue, and part of the synagogue worship was singing and music. But Jesus was even more engaged in music than that, not just once a week. Since The Old Testament commands personal and private singing to God. And since our Lord perfectly obeyed God and kept all of His commands, we know that music was a daily part of our Lord's life. Jesus sang, and He sang all the time. Because of our Lord's example and the Scripture's clear commands, music also plays a crucial role in the life of the individual believer and in the New Testament local church. Now, we're going to consider this in depth during the rest of our time today and over the next couple of weeks, so I'll just mention it in this history. We'll come back and fill that in. But let's fast-forward to the future. And when we fast forward, we discover that music will be an essential part of the worship of the people of God in eternity. We will sing accompanied by instruments in the presence of God forever. Turn to Revelation chapter 5. We've studied this recently as we've been making our way through this book. But Revelation chapter 5 verse 8, when our Lord had taken the book, that is the title deed to the earth, the scroll with seven seals. The four living creatures, those are those, those august beings, angelic beings around God's throne, and the 24 elders representing the church of Jesus Christ fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Notice there is both singing and there are instruments accompanying that singing. Go over to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation 14 and verse 2. I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder, and the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. So, this is a song that only those 144,000 Jewish evangelists who will who will evangelize during the tribulation period, this is their song. This is their special number in heaven, but they will sing. Go over to chapter 15, verse 2, and I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God and the song of the Lamb saying, and then the words of the song are recorded. So understand this, we will sing with music accompaniment eternally. That's what the Scriptures teach. That's a, a, an overview of the biblical history of music. And because of that biblical history, it's not surprising what we discover in a third insight that we learn from Scripture about music, and it's this, the biblical priority of music in worship. The biblical priority of music in worship. Let me just give you several biblical arguments for the priority of music in worship. Argument number one, God commands every believer to worship in music individually. You see, singing is a command of God, and it's a response to God. It's both at the same time. It's what He commands us to do, but it is a natural response and reaction to what we learn about God. The Psalms constantly make this point and call God's people to sing. There's so many texts, but let me just highlight a couple for you. Turn to Psalm 33. Psalm 33, verse 1 sing for joy in Yahweh, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Praise fits those who know him. Give thanks to Yahweh with the lyre. Sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy, for the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness." So here we have the command to sing and to play instruments in the worship of God because of who God is, because He's worthy of this worship and praise. Turn over to Psalm 69. Psalm 69, verse 30. I will praise the name of God with song and magnify Him with thanksgiving. And watch verse 31 and it will please Yahweh better than an ox or a young bull with horns and hooves. In other words, listen, if I sing to God, if I praise God from my heart, it is a better and more acceptable sacrifice to God than if I lived in Old Testament times and offered an animal. It's exactly what Hebrews says, right? We offer the sacrifice of our lips giving praise to his name. Turn over to Psalm 96. Psalm 96, verse 1, sing to Yahweh a new song, sing to Yahweh all the earth, sing to Yahweh, bless his name, proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day, tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all peoples. Why? Because great is Yahweh and greatly to be feared, greatly to be praised. In other words, it's because of who God is that calls out our praise, that calls out our singing and our worship. Look at Psalm 100, a favorite of mine. The first verse is a call to own God as our king. The second verse is a call to worship. Serve is really another word for worship. Worship Yahweh with gladness come before Him with joyful singing. Psalm 147. And again, I'm just highlighting a couple of passages that show this. Psalm 147, verse 1, praise Yahweh, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is becoming. Psalm 149 is is about the praise of God in song. Verse 1, praise Yahweh, sing to Yahweh a new song and His praise in the congregation of the godly ones. Verse 5, let the godly ones exult in glory, let them sing for joy on their beds. Notice there is a call to sing privately and individually and corporately with God's people. We are commanded to sing to our God in worship. Now, let me just say that we live in an audience-based entertainment culture. And there are too many churches where people just watch during the singing with their mouths closed. Now, that's true for a number of reasons. In some cases, it's because the music is a performance and they don't really want the people singing. Perhaps music and singing and its importance have never really been explained. Others, I think, sometimes choose not to sing because they say, you know, I just can't sing well, or, or music's just not my thing. In some cases, particularly with the younger set, it's just not cool. Listen, all of those reasons are totally unacceptable. The Bible commands all true believers to sing, so unless you have a physical issue You can't sing that day or can't sing period because of some physical limitation or you're being asked to sing something that's wrong, that's in error, you have to sing. Not singing otherwise is a sin because it's a direct disobedience to our Lord. It's a command. A second biblical argument for the priority of music and worship is this. A love for God-centered music is the fruit of being filled by the Spirit. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. The theme of the passage that begins in verse 15 of chapter 5 is we, if we're going to walk worthy of our calling, must walk in biblical wisdom. You remember the second half of Ephesians is about walking worthy of our calling. That's Ephesians 4.1. Well, one way to walk worthy of our calling is to walk in biblical wisdom. Look at verse 15. Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. And then the following verses explain how to walk in biblical wisdom. There are several ways spelled out here, but the last one, the one to which Paul is building, is in verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with wine with or by the Spirit. Now, this is, a, this is another message. And in fact, if you weren't here when we worked our way through Ephesians, go listen. But let me just give you a summary. Being filled by the Spirit means not that you get more of the Spirit. If you're a Christian, you've got all the Spirit you're going to get. He indwells you. Being filled by the Spirit means that the Spirit so fills you with the Word of God, compare Colossians 3.16, He so fills you with the Word of God that the Word of God permeates, directs, controls your thinking, your attitudes, and your actions. So, be filled by the Spirit with the Word of God. That's the end of verse 18. Now, in verse 19, Paul leaves that command and describes the consequences of being filled by the Spirit with the Word of God. There are consequences, just like there are effects of being under the influence of alcohol, there are effects of being under the influence of the Spirit. What are those effects? Well, they're spelled out in verses 19 to 21. Look at them with me. So he says in verse 18, and this is the main verb, be filled with the Spirit. And then you have several participles. Verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, notice there are five participles there that modify the main verb, be filled. Verse 19, speaking, singing, making melody. Verse 20, giving thanks Verse 21, being subject. Those participles explain the primary consequences of being filled by the Spirit with His Word. Really, there are three consequences. Verse 19, you have a love for God-centered music. Verse 20, you're characterized by a pattern of thankfulness. And verse 21, you have a heart of submission to human authority. Those are the inevitable results of being under the influence of the Spirit. So, listen carefully. Where the Word is filling the heart under the influence of the Spirit, an inevitable consequence of that will be a love for God-centered music. This is a spiritual diagnostic. Ask yourself, do you daily love and enjoy worshiping God with God-centered music? To whatever extent you have to say no to that, understand that it's, it's a spiritual diagnostic and it's telling you one of two things. It's either telling you you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't know God, regardless of what you claim, or it may be telling you that you are a believer, but you are not allowing the Holy Spirit to really fill you with the knowledge of his word so that this is what's produced as you understand who God is and that overflows in praise. There's a third argument for the priority of music and worship, and it's that Christ commands the church to worship in music in its corporate worship. Now, let me just say that there is an increasing push today to incorporate secular music into the church's worship. In fact, over the last few years, Churches have used everything from Coldplay to Van Halen, Creed, U2, ACDC, Taylor Swift, and even Garth Brooks in the worship of the church. Right now, a pastor in our area is doing a series where each week he plays a secular song and his sermon is trying to find the spiritual truth in that song. Now, why do we include music in our worship and why don't we include secular songs? Well, there's one answer to both of those questions. It's the second commandment. You see, the second commandment teaches that God alone has the right to prescribe how we worship Him. Listen to Exodus 20, verses 4 and 5. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them nor serve them. Now listen carefully. That is not a commandment not to worship other gods because the first commandment is that commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. That's a commandment not to worship other gods. The second commandment, the one I just read, is a commandment not to shape your worship of the true God in the way you choose. Don't follow the culture around you. That's what they were tempted to do. All the people around ancient Israel, guess what? They had idols to represent their gods. Well, why can't we have an idol to represent our god? Which is, by the way, exactly what happened with the golden calf. They finished the golden calf, and what did they say? This is Yahweh, your God, who led you out of the land of of Egypt. God says, not only are you not to have any other gods, but you don't get to decide how to worship me. That's the second commandment. We only include certain elements in corporate worship based on what Scripture prescribes. Now, there was agreement among the Reformers on this basic principle because it grew out of sola scriptura. The Bible is the ultimate and only authority in faith and practice. But although they agreed on sola scriptura, they disagreed on how that fleshed out in determining what elements should be included in worship. And the reason I mention it is this. Those two views from the Reformation are still very much alive and well today, and churches are shaped by them. What are those two views? Well, the first view is that of the Lutherans and the Anglicans who joined with the Roman Catholics in embracing what was called the normative principle. The normative principle teaches that whatever Scripture does not explicitly forbid is acceptable in worship. In other words, the normative principle asks this, does Scripture forbid this practice in worship? And if the Scripture doesn't explicitly forbid it, then it's, it's okay. Do what you want. Others, the Reformed, embrace the opposite position called the regulative principle. And the regulative principle argues that only that which Scripture explicitly prescribes is acceptable in worship. The regular principle asks this, does Scripture command or directly sanction this practice? If not, then it's not allowed in worship. John Calvin puts it well when he writes, God disapproves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned by His Word. And he wasn't alone in this. Both the Westminster Confession, representing The Presbyterian line and the Second London Baptist Confession of of 1689 representing the Baptists both say exactly the same thing. Listen. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men. Listen carefully. Or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. Because of the danger of violating the second commandment, and because God has very clearly said that only He decides how we worship Him, the elders of this church embrace the regulative principle. That means our corporate worship, everything after the announcement you heard this morning, everything from that moment until our service is over, happens. Because God has commanded us to do these things. Our corporate worship includes only seven elements, the seven that God has prescribed in His Word. In our worship services, this is what you will see because it's what God's Word sets forth. Number one, prayer. Number two, worship and music. Number three, the reading of Scripture. Number four, the teaching of Scripture. Number five, giving to support the ministry of the church and the kingdom number six, baptism, and number seven, the Lord's table. That's it. That's all God has prescribed in his word, and that's all we're going to do in corporate worship. When we do those seven things with the right heart, it honors God because those are his specific directives for our worship. So, back to the theme, God's people sing in corporate worship. Why? Because God himself has commanded it to be part of our worship of him. We saw it in the Old Testament. Corporate worship was foundational. It's true in the synagogues that our Lord was a part of, and it's also true in the New Testament church. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is dealing with the problem of tongues in Corinth. But in the middle of that discussion, he inserts several things that were part of the normal worship services of God's people. One of those is singing. 1 Corinthians 14, 15, and 26. This is also what Paul wanted the Ephesians to understand here in Ephesians five, nineteen. God's people sing collectively for various reasons, and we'll look at those, Lord willing, next time. There's a fourth argument for the priority of music, and it's the fact, and this is amazing, that our Lord himself sings. Why does music occupy such a crucial role in Scripture? I mean, I get it. Why why the teaching of God's Word is so central in the worship of God's people? It's God's words, after all. But why music? The simple answer is, is because it is a huge priority to God Himself. Listen carefully. God Himself sings. Turn to Zephaniah. It's near the end of the Old Testament, a little prophecy. Zephaniah chapter 3. The context here, the prophet is talking about when God brings His people back from Babylon, from their captivity and re constitutes them in the land. But then in the middle of this chapter, he starts talking about the ultimate restoration that will come when Christ comes. It will come with the millennium and with the eternal future. And notice what he writes in verse 16 of Zephaniah 3. In that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp, Yahweh, your God, is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Now, I love the NAS, but that really is a bad translation, the last line of verse 17. In fact, let me give you the ESV translation, the English Standard Version. He will exult over you with loud singing. Some of you like the new Legacy Standard Bible that the Master's Seminary has worked on. Here is is the translation that he gives. He will rejoice over you with joyful singing. This is amazing. When we seek God, verses 12 and 13 of this chapter, when we trust in Him, verses 14 to 16, God, our God, takes personal delight in us just as He will in redeemed Israel in the future. As one author describes it, this is not an aloof, emotionless contentment, but it bursts forth in joyful, divine celebration. God will sing over his people when he brings them into his kingdom. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. This is my favorite. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. Now, you, you have to follow his logic here carefully. Let me just read it, and you follow along in your copy of God's Word. Hebrews 2 verse 10, for it was fitting for him, and him here is God, for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation, that's Jesus, through sufferings. For both he, that is Jesus, who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, that's us, are all from one Father for which reason he, that is Jesus, is not ashamed to call us his brothers, saying, and this is Jesus talking to the Father now, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. This is an amazing passage, but in verse 12, the writer of Hebrews is quoting Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two. It's one of the Messianic Psalms that's quoted often of Jesus in the Gospels. Now, look at the end of verse 12. Literally, in the Greek text, it reads this way. This is Jesus talking to the Father. In the middle of the assembly, that is the assembly of my brethren whom you saved, I will hymn you. He uses the word H-Y-M-N, hymn as a verb. I will hymn you. I will praise you. I will sing praises to you. This is amazing. Jesus sang praise to the Father while he was here, and he will lead us in the praise of the Father in eternity. And the end of verse 13 explains the reason for this praise, behold the children whom God has given to me. Jesus Christ, our Lord, will stand in the middle of us, a redeemed humanity, and he will sing praise to God the Father that the Father has given us to him. And then we will join our Lord in his songs of praise about our redemption. It's no wonder that our redemption is one of the primary reasons for our songs now as well. Folks, our God. Sings, do you? Do you love God centered music? Do you find yourself singing praise to God privately and personally? Do you enjoy singing with the people of God? Is music that expresses praise to God a crucial part of your life? If not, listen carefully, it's a very, very effective spiritual diagnostic. It means either you don't have God's Spirit or it means you're not mature in Christ. You don't understand the Word of God because what the Word of God does as we learn more about God is it draws out our praise and worship. We just can't help it. It's the automatic response. You're not allowing the Spirit to fill you with the Word richly in all wisdom because the very first result of being filled by the Spirit is a love for God-centered music. And it's God's command to us personally, privately, individually, and corporately. Psalm 100, verse 2. Worship Yahweh with gladness. Come before Him with joyful singing.